Welcome to the Critique Journal Club podcast for October 2014. I'm Neil Orford and this is where we look at the critical care literature that caught our eye in the last month. It's been a big month thanks to the eSICM conference in Barcelona where a lot of landmark and big new trials were presented. So, let's get started. Let's look at anaesthesia first, something we don't often look into at Critique. In the Lancet we have the Enigma 2 trial. So the Enigma trial reported a non-significant increase 0.7% to 1.3% in ischemic cardiac complications within 30 days of surgery and a significant increase in late myocardial infarct from 4.5 to 6.4% in patients receiving nitrous oxide. However, Enigma was not designed to assess cardiovascular complications and was unpowered for cardiovascular outcomes. So this paper is the Enigma 2 trial, a multi-center RCT designed to establish whether or not the addition of nitrous oxide, which was nitrous 7030 with oxygen, versus air oxygen to the anesthetic regime increases the occurrence of death or cardiovascular complications in 7,112 at-risk patients, so that's patients with a cardiac risk factors including history of coronary artery disease, heart failure, cerebrovascular disease, or peripheral vascular disease, or older age, or having non-cardiac surgery. They report that patients were well matched at baseline with a mean age of 69 years, 62% were ASA3 and 7% were ASA4 and the duration of anesthesia was 3.2 hours. The median FiO2 was 30% in the nitrous group and 33% in the air group so they did get a reasonable dose of the study drug so to speak. The composite primary outcome of death or cardiovascular complication within 30 days occurred in 8% of patients in each group, and that's a relative risk of 0.96, confidence intervals of 0.83 to 1.12, a p-value of 0.64. Now the only outcome differences were more severe nausea and vomiting in the group that received nitrous oxide, and that was less apparent if they received prophylactic anti-emetics and a lower patient-related quality of recovery score with nitrous oxide, but that wasn't clinically significant. So overall, this study suggests that the addition of nitrous oxide general anesthesia regime does not increase serious adverse events or infections, although there is a higher incidence of severe nausea and vomiting. This contradicts the Enigma trial results, and the authors discuss this, including lower acuity and numbers in Enigma, and the possible effect of uncontrolled oxygen concentration in the non-nitrous oxide arm of Enigma. Interesting stuff. Okay, let's get into these big intensive care trials from the month. So first, in the New England Journal of Medicine, we have lower versus higher hemoglobin threshold for transfusion in septic shock from the TRIS trial group and the Scandinavian critical care trials group. The surviving sepsis guidelines recommend transfusions to maintain a hematocrit greater than 30% in the presence of hypoperfusion in the first six hours 
after which a trigger of 7 grams per deciliter should be aimed for with a target of 7 to 9 grams per deciliter in the absence of myocardial ischemia, severe hypoxia, acute hemorrhage or ischemic coronary artery disease. The evidence for this is limited, with the first six hours recommendation based on the initial Rivers trial, a result increasingly in question as signified by the ARISE trial, which we'll discuss later. They reported a transfusion rate of 7% in the usual care group versus 14% in the EGDT group, with no difference in outcome. This, combined with the previous TRIC study, not specifically addressing sepsis, makes this a must-read study. So the TRIS trial, this study, evaluates the effects on mortality of leuco-reduced blood transfusion at a lower 7 grams per deciliter versus a higher 9 gram per deciliter haemoglobin threshold in 998 patients with septic shock in ICU. Patients were given single units of RBCs if they met the trigger and the HB was rechecked three hours after transfusion to see if the trigger was met. This continued for 90 days or until ICU discharge. If life-threatening bleeding or ECMO was required, this could be changed by the treating doctor. They calculated 1,000 patients were needed to show a 9% absolute risk reduction at 90 days from a 45% baseline. The outcomes, the baseline characteristics were similar between the two groups. The daily haemoglobin levels clearly separated after randomization between the groups, sitting in the range of 7 to 8 grams per deciliter for the low group and 9 to 10 grams per deciliter for the high group. That is, there was treatment separation and it was very clear. Equally, the transfusion requirements were increased in the high group, 3,088 versus 1,500 transfusions and the median number of transfusions per patient were different, 4 in the high, 1 in the low. The primary outcome, death at 90 days, was not different, 43% in the low group, 45% in the high group, relative risk of 0.94, confidence intervals 0.78 to 1.09, p-value of 0.44. Secondary outcomes, there was no difference in mortality in subgroup analyses or in secondary outcomes, that is adverse events, vasopressors, ventilation, renal replacement theory, days alive out of hospital. So in summary, there was no difference in outcome between septic patients in ICU with a low versus high transfusion trigger. So transfusion trigger of 7 grams per deciliter is safe and results in fewer transfusions in sepsis. The next big trial in the New England Journal of Medicine is the trial of the route of early nutritional support in critically ill adults, the Calories Trial Investigators. Now this is a great trial in that it sets out to test the truism that enteral nutrition is superior to parenteral nutrition in critically ill patients. The authors begin by challenging this premise, stating that the evidence of harm from PN is outdated, while the evidence for benefit of EN is limited. This study randomized 2,388 adult patients within 36 hours of an unplanned ICU admission who were expected to require nutritional support for at least two days in 33 English ICUs to EN or PN. 
nutritional support was initiated as soon as possible after randomization and used exclusively by the assigned route for five days or until discharge from ICU, death or transition to oral intake. Energy targets were set at 25 kilocalories per kilo per day to be reached by 48 or 72 hours. A study size of 2,400 patients was planned to determine a relative risk reduction in 30-day mortality of 20% from a baseline of 32%. The outcomes? There was no difference in the primary outcome of 30-day mortality. That was 33.1% for PN versus 34.2% for EN, a relative risk of 0.97, 95% confidence intervals of 0.86 to 1.08, p-value of 0.57. This did not change with risk adjustment. 97% of the patients received EN support as assigned. The EN group had a higher total GRV, 958, versus 35 mils. The caloric intake was not achieved by the majority of patients in both groups and was similar between groups. The parenteral route experienced less hypoglycemia and vomiting, and there was no difference in infectious complications, adverse events, or 90-day mortality. In summary, this study reports no significant difference in outcomes in adult critically ill patients receiving enteral or parenteral nutrition. The findings of less GIT complications with PN, no increase in infectious complications with PN, and no improvement of caloric delivery with PN are interesting, but perhaps don't affect outcome. The accompanying editorial summarizes this well. Among patients without contraindications to either route of delivery, when enteral nutrition and parenteral nutrition are initiated early and with similar caloric and protein doses, clinical outcomes appear to be similar. It's fascinating. Okay, let's move to JAMA and the effects of decontamination of the oropharynx and intestinal tract on antibiotic resistant in ICUs. This is another must-read trial and will create further debate about the use of SDD or SOD or nothing. This is timely given the two meta-analyses this year in the JAMA Internal Medicine and BMJ that concluded more work was needed in the area. So firstly, it is a big achievement and a big trial using a cluster randomized crossover design to compare 12 months of SOD to 12 months of SDD in 16 Dutch ICUs, resulting in about 12,000 patients included in the study. This same group published a SDD trial in 2009 reporting relative reductions in death at day 28 compared to control. So the aim of this study was to examine the effect of SDD and SOD on unit-wide bacterial ecology. So the therapies were SOD which was oropharyngeal application every six hours of a paste containing colistin Tobramycin and amphotericin B, each in a 2% concentration, and it was given for the entire ICU stay. SDD was SOD plus 10 mils suspension containing colistin, tobramycin, amphotericin B given via the NG tube, plus a third generation cephalosporin, or, which is cefotaxime or keftriaxone, given IV during the first four days in the ICU. The outcomes? There was 
a lower prevalence of antibiotic-resistant gram-negative bacilli on perianal swabs with SDD versus SOD. There was an increased prevalence of rectal carriage of antibiotic-resistant GNBs during intervention of 7% with SDD and 4% SOD per month. The 28-day mortality was similar, around 25% for the two groups. The ICU-acquired bacteremia of SDD was 4.6% versus 5.9% for SOD. That's a p-value of 0.002. And the reduction in bacteria was most pronounced for Enterobacteriaceae or with an odds ratio of 0.42. Over time, the prevalence of highly resistant microorganisms tended to increase during SOD and SDD, but the most prominent increase was observed for SDD compared to SOD. So what what can we take from this? The overall prevalence of antibiotic-resistant bacteria was low, and SDD provided lower prevalence rates compared to SOD, although SDD had a larger increase over time. Now, like all SDD literature, I suspect the interpretation of this will be heavily influenced by readers' bias. There will be criticisms that there is no control group, an issue addressed by the authors, as the ICUs involved in this study don't have equipoise about giving no SDD or no SOD given their previous positive trial. So this is always going to be an SDD versus SOD effect on ecology trial, even though the rest of us would love to have seen the control results. So the pro-SDD take is that there are outcome benefits compared to placebo, and this study shows low rates of antibiotic resistance. An anti-SDD approach will stress that there was a gradual increase in antibiotic-resistant gram-negative bacilli in the population with low baseline rates, particularly the emergence of some multi-resistant strains. And recent metagenomic approaches demonstrate an increase in the number of antibiotic-resistant genes, especially of genes conferring resistance to aminoglycosides in patients with SDD. So the take-home message may be that we won't have an answer until this is trialled in other non-user environments like Australia, New Zealand, the US, the UK and the effect of SDD versus SOD versus placebo on outcome and resistance are measured. But I suspect for the anti-SDD group the increase in antibiotic resistance over time observed in this study will ring alarm bells and perhaps will move us away from equipoise. Sticking with JAMA We have the effect of high-dose vitamin D3 on hospital length of stay in critically ill patients with vitamin D deficiency, the VITE-DAL ICU randomized clinical trial. So the interaction of vitamin D with critical illness remains unclear despite recent interest. We know there is a high level of vitamin D insufficiency and, and deficiency in critically ill patients and that there is an association with poor outcome. It is unclear if low vitamin D levels simply reflect disease severity or are an independent factor that contributes to poor outcome and if replacing this improves outcome. In this trial, 475 critically ill adults with vitamin D deficiency, that's less than or equal to 20 nanograms per mil, 
from five ICUs were randomized to D3 entry 540,000 units stat, then 90,000 units monthly for five months, or placebo. The outcomes, well the groups were well matched at baseline. The primary outcome, which was hospital length of stay, there was no difference, that's 20.1 days for D3 versus 19.3 days for placebo. Secondary outcomes, no significant difference in hospital and six month mortality. D3 was associated with better hand grip and physical performance at six months and a priori subgroup analysis of severe deficiency, that's less than 12 nanograms per, per mil, and there were 200 patients in this category, found lower hospital mortality, 28.6% with D3, compared to 46% with placebo. And that's a hazard ratio of 0.56, a p-value of 0.04. But the six-month mortality was not different. 34.7% for D3, 50% for placebo, a hazard ratio of 0.6, 95% confidence intervals of 0.39 to 0.93, a p-value for interaction of 0.12. Now that may not have been significant, but a decrease in mortality from 50% to 34.7% at six months looks pretty big. So this is a really impressive study as it is large. They selected patients with deficiency rather than all comers, which has been a criticism of previous endocrine-based ICU trials. They gave it for a long period of time, six months, and they followed them up over a long period. The result is negative, but the possible mortality benefit in patients with severe deficiency, the non-significant but fairly large decrease in mortality with D3, and the possible physical benefits may lead to increasing interest in testing D3 in these higher risk subpopulations further. Okay, still in the New England Journal of Medicine, we have simvastatin in the acute respiratory distress syndrome, and this came from the Irish Critical Care Trials Group. So the hypothesis that statins could modify the inflammatory process in ARDS and improve outcomes is biologically plausible. This prospect of RCT randomized 540 patients with ARDS for less than 48 hours to simvastatin that was enteral 80 milligrams daily for 28 days, or placebo in 40 ICUs in the UK and Ireland. They report that baseline data was similar except for a small but significant decrease in PF ratio in the simvastatin group. Patients received the study drug for 11 to 12 days. Um, the main reason for cessation was uh, discharge or death. The primary outcome, ventilator-free days to day 28, there was no difference, 12.6 with simvastatin versus 11.5 with placebo. There were no difference in secondary outcomes, and there was no difference in subgroup analysis. So in conclusion, simvastatin, given enterally in the first 48 hours of ARDS, did not result in benefit. Now this is in agreement with a similar study of resuvastatin published earlier this year. So perhaps it's time to stop looking at it. Okay, on to perhaps the biggest study of the month, the ARISE investigators from the ANZIC CTG in the New England Journal of Medicine, goal-directed resuscitation for patients with early septic shock. Now this is a must-read, 1,600 patient trial testing 
early goal-directed therapy versus standard care in 51 Australian New Zealand ICUs. It follows the initial Rivers trial, the process trial from the US, and still to come, the PROMISE trial from the UK. Adult patients with early severe sepsis, septic shock, which was refractory hypotension or hypoperfusion after a greater than one litre fluid bolus within two hours of meeting criteria, were randomised to EGDT, which was the study team inserting a mixed venous oxygen catheter art line within the first hour, and delivered care at the bedside for the first six hours following an EGT algorithm. After six hours, they received usual care, or standard care. The sample size is based on an assumed in-hospital mortality of 28% and 38% at 90 days, and an aim to detect an absolute risk reduction of 7.6 percentage points, and that's a relative risk reduction of 20%. What did they do and find? Well, the groups were matched at baseline, about 70% met the refractory hypotension criteria, and 46% the lactate criteria. The amount of fluid administered at enrolment was about 2.5 litres in both groups, and the time from ED presentation to enrolment was 2.8 hours. The time from ED presentation to first antibiotics was 67 to 70 minutes, with respiratory and urinary tract infections most common, and positive blood cultures in 38% of patients. A CVC was inserted during the first six hours in 62% of the usual care group and the mixed venous catheter in 90% of the EGDT group. Therapies in the first six hours for EGDT versus usual, well EGDT had more IV fluid, more vasopressure infusion, more red cells, 13.6 versus 7%, more dobutamine, 15.4 versus 2.6%, no difference in mechanical ventilation percentage or duration, and no difference in renal replacement therapy incidence, which was 13.4 versus 13.5% or duration, which was 57.8 versus 85.9 hours. Now that wasn't significant, but is a relatively long period of time, about 24 hours or one day more renal replacement therapy. Therapies in the first 72 hours of EGDT versus usual. EGDT was associated with more vasopressors, more dobutamine. Uh, the physiological outcomes in the first six hours, EGDT, they had higher mean arterial pressures. It was 0.8 of a millimetre of mercury high, which uh, is significant but doesn't seem clinically relevant and there were no difference in other variables. The primary outcome, 90-day mortality, was 18.6% for EGDT, 18.8% for usual care. There was no difference in between-group mortality in subgroups and after adjustment for pre-specified baseline covariates. The secondary outcomes, EGDT had a shorter ED length of stay and more overall vasopressors. In summary, this is a very well conducted large trial with excellent external validity. There's a negative primary outcome similar to process with an overall impression that standard care was very good in both these studies. This tells us a lot about the demographics, treatment, 
and outcomes for sepsis in Australia and New Zealand. The outcomes were better than expected. The assumed mortality was 38%. It was actually 18%. This is consistent with process, where the range was 18.2 to 21% in the three arms at 90 days. The shorter ED length of stay may have just been due to the intervention. That is, they had a mixed venous catheter, so they got sent to ICU. The decrease of renal replacement therapy duration by one day in the EGT group was not significant, but is interesting and may generate further post hoc analysis and discussion. So it'll be interesting to see the final study from the UK soon. Sticking with sepsis, in critical care medicine, we have long-term mortality of younger, previously healthy patients with severe sepsis and septic shock is worse than that of patients with non-septic critical illness and of the general population. And this comes from Vancouver. So the long-term mortality rates after sepsis are reported as 11 to 42% at one year and 21 to 54% at three to five years. The authors tell us that it is not known whether long-term mortality rates of previously healthy persons who develop severe sepsis and septic shock differ from patients with non-septic critical illness or from an age and gender comparable general population. This prospective cohort study identified the one-year to ten-year mortality, and that is the mortality rate of patients who were alive at one year but died within ten years in 2,289 patients from a quaternary medical surgical ICU and a cardiothoracic ICU compared to age and gender matched population controls in Vancouver. So they compared the mortality of three groups, those with severe sepsis and septic shock, of which there were 1,030, those from the cardiothoracic ICU, and the community controls. They report patients with severe sepsis and septic shock with no underlying comorbidity had higher 1 to 10 year mortality than matched population controls and cardiothoracic patients. Patients under 70 years of age with severe sepsis septic shock and no comorbidities have a higher 1 to 10 year mortality than cardiothoracic patients. The impact of severe sepsis septic shock on long-term mortality was greatest amongst patients less than 60 years of age. Patients less than 60 years of age who survived one year after ICU admission had a 24.4% 1 to 10 year mortality compared to 2.7 in age and gender matched general population. So overall, patients with severe sepsis and septic shock who survive for one year have a higher 1 to 10 year mortality rate than cardiothoracic patients, patients with non-septic critical illness, and general age and gender matched population controls. And this suggests that the septic process, as opposed to just being critically ill, worsens long-term prognosis separate from that initial critical illness and separate from comorbidities. The authors point out they have no clear explanation for this and postulate the greater hyperimmune response in younger people that may persist and lead to organ injury, immune and coagulation changes. Interesting stuff. On a slightly different tact, in the American Journal of Respiratory Critical Care Medicine, we have the Choosing Wisely Top 5 list in critical care medicine. So the Choosing Wisely campaign 
was launched by the American Board of Internal Medicine Foundation in 2011 with a goal to identify tests or interventions that physicians and patients should question. In 2012, the Critical Care Societies Collaborative, which are US societies, were tasked to develop a critical care top five list of low-value practices in the field of critical care medicine. After an extensive process, which is methodologically described in the paper, they've come up with the following. Recommendation 1. Do not order diagnostic tests at regular intervals, such as every day, but rather in response to specific clinical questions. Recommendation 2. Do not transfuse red blood cells in hemodynamically stable, non-bleeding ICU patients with a hemoglobin concentration greater than 7 grams per deciliter. Recommendation 3. Do not use parenteral nutrition in adequately nourished, critically ill patients within the first 7 days of an ICU stay. Recommendation 4. Do not deeply sedate mechanically ventilated patients without a specific indication and without daily attempts to lighten sedation. Recommendation 5. Do not continue life support for patients at high risk for death or severely impaired functional recovery without offering patients and their families the alternate of care focused entirely on comfort. Well, that's it for Critique Journal Club podcast for October 2014. Come to the website and have a look at the papers and some of the other papers in more detail. Otherwise, we'll see you next month. Thanks.